You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, who is still a current service member after 30 years and a highly decorated uh, combat correspondent and public affairs officer with multiple deployments overseas. Just an incredible story. Of course, somebody who uh, connects us, uh, connected us, a friend in the military connected us, and she has an amazing book out as well. We'll get to that coming up in just a few moments. Our normal announcements, please continue to leave us Apple reviews, help us grow the show, give us five stars, tell us why you love the show, and certainly it will help us grow this hazard ground community, and we appreciate all the love and support you guys give us. Don't forget to uh, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, uh, at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast. Check out the website, hazardground.com. You can get pictures and bios of all of our guests on there as well. And our promotion with Amazon is on our website as well. Go to hazardground.com, hazardground.com as I stumble over the name of my own website. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. It will redirect you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then uh, we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the great charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Works the same way from your smartphone, uh, redirects to the app. So if you save all your credit card information, they're really easy and user-friendly. So, uh, again, hazardground.com. Check out the website there as well. All right, this week's guest is actually still currently serving in the military. She spent 18 years in the Marine Corps and then switched over to the Naval Reserves where she holds the rank of Lieutenant Commander. She spent most of her time, all of her time, as a matter of fact, in the public affairs realm as a combat correspondent uh, and a journalist and now works in Naval Public Affairs. She's got five combat tours and has won multiple awards over the last 20 years while covering combat operations and military exercise places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Guam, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, Romania, Poland, all of it. She has her first book out, titled Heroes Live Here, a tribute to Camp Pendleton Marines since 9-11. And she also actually de- deployed as well with the 75th Ranger Regiment. She was just named uh, one of Success Magazine's Top 50 Women of Influence. And she is Amy Forsyth joining us here on the Hazard Ground. Amy, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thanks. Great to see you this morning. Appreciate you having me on the show. Oh, absolutely. A uh, good friend of ours, uh, Scott Using. You, you guys were on a book tour with him. And Fred Galvin, who we just uh, interviewed a while back. And his, his book, A Few Bad Men, about the Marines uh, and, and his trials and tribulations. So I just love getting that connective tissue together with a lot of our guests and, and connecting them all for our audience. But uh, certainly an amazing career. 30 years, still going strong. Uh, where, where's the finish line for you? A couple years out. I'm just, uh, as they say, riding it until the wheels come off. So I'm just con- continuing my service. And, you know, working in public affairs and media industry is just um such a great uh career no two days are ever the same and so it's just every opportunity is just a chance to learn and grow and work with great people well of course now you know you're so thankful for the politically charged environment and everything that we're involved in getting uh blown one way or another so you're certainly not bored uh or ever static given the 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 way the world is right now that's right. It's just uh, what's today? Wake up and go, okay, what is happening and what fires can I put out? What can I solve? 
who can I help and how can I make an impact? Yeah. And who did what? That created some sort of shitstorm that nobody really cares about that we're blowing out of proportion. Exactly. Welcome to military public affairs. All right. Uh, start back at the beginning because 30 years, a long, long time. Uh, and certainly there wasn't a war on terror going on when you signed up. So how and why did you end up in the Marines? Oh. Yeah, you know, my family thought I was crazy, but I grew up in Northern California, just north of San Francisco. I went to an all-girls Catholic school, but I was just so, um, you know, drawn to the military. It's just that patriotic spirit. My grandparents all served in the military. Even my grandmother, who was an Army nurse during World War II, she served overseas in Guam and Saipan. And I just kind of grew up hearing their stories and being sort of um, so interested in serving myself in San Francisco at that time in the eighties was a great military town with a lot of Navy and Marines stationed there. And I used to go to the fleet weeks and just was really drawn to that. So I just loved the thought of serving. And so I enlisted after high school, uh, kind of not a big transition because you go to school, you wear a uniform and you go and do what the nuns tell you to do. And in the Marine Corps, it's pretty much the same thing. So Um, But I definitely wanted to be in public affairs. I wanted to take photos and tell stories of our troops. And so I got the job that I wanted, luckily. And my recruiter, you know, ensured that I had that MOS. And so it was just really one great deployment after another kind of caught this wave and I'm still riding that wave. And so, um, but my first duty station, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, just after the movie, a few uh, <laughs> came out. Major General Jessa, commanding officer, Marine Ground Forces, Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Yes. Yes. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what did I get myself into? Uh, but that that story in the movie and the portrayal was not far from the truth of how they how the Marines operated down there uh, really? in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, yes. Hollywood didn't take a lot of liberties with that? No, I mean, it was based on a true story, oh, really? but the, the culture there was pretty much the same, but this code red, uh, you know, the, the seriousness of it and guarding the fence line. And at that time, if you can imagine, um, you know, Fidel Castro, it was, it was a very tenuous time. It was very, very, um, kind of stressful. And so when, uh, there were only a couple hand, handful of women in the military and the Marines and the uh, Navy down there. So, of course, being new, new concept, right, of the women in the military. So it was interesting deployment for me. But during that time, uh, as you may recall, some of the viewers out there, when the Cuban and Haitian exodus occurred in 1994, when tens of thousands of people fled Cuba and Haiti and tried to make their way to America by swimming or boat or raft. And so we picked them all up and corralled them on the base at Guantanamo Bay. And so there was about 60,000 migrants living on a base that was designed for 4,000 people. So that was my first introduction to a joint task force, humanitarian operations, real world mission right out of the gate. And it was just an amazing experience. So I got to interview all of our top leaders, chief of Navy operations, the commandant of the Marine Corps. And here I was, Lance Corporal, Amy Forsyth, when I was working at the radio and TV station there covering stories. So really got a taste of just how uh, military operations turn into, you know, full-fledged humanitarian uh response and we conducted a non-combatant evacuation operation. And so it was just a great introduction. Um 
to military operations. So I mean, media is so different now than it was back then. How much resistance did you run into, not only because you were media, but also because you were a female? Well, you know, just being there on the ground when first arriving, it was, uh, you know, of course, the Marines were like, you know, what is she doing here? You know, uh, kind of feeling. So I just tried to do the best job I could, tell the story, share the courage of the Marines and sailors operating down there and, you know, do the best job that I could Um not knowing why, why do they hate me so much, you know, um, but learned that the Marine Corps culture wasn't this romantic idea of service and, you know, Semper Fi and brotherhood, sisterhood and things like that. Things have changed quite a bit, luckily, but being at that first initial kind of step off for me was, was an introduction to the Marine Corps and the culture in the military. So, but I learned a lot and that was a great thing. I learned so many great lessons about interacting and you know we were only 90 miles off the coast of florida but it felt like a million miles away because phones and internet was just starting to begin and emails traffic was just starting so the good old-fashioned days of writing letters and once a week phone call maybe uh so just kind of seeing that transition now where where we are today you know so deploying and being far from home was not anything new to me, but I, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the adventure, the travel, the mission, and trying to get the message out. Unfortunately, um, it's part of your existence as a female in the military, and I kind of just am blunt about it, but how much sexual harassment did you deal with um, being there early on? You know, I would say, luckily for me, uh, not so much of the sexual harassment or it was just uh, when you when you're on the outside of a group, when you're on the outside, trying to be on the inside when you're not really wanted or you know accepted was was tough. But I, so it was very lonely, you know, for the most part. Um, there were only a couple handful of other female Marines, but we all worked different schedules. But once the Joint Task Force kicked off and we had this full on operation. And I was out there taking photos, telling stories. I was on the radio every day. So people knew who I was, you know, was because of, they listened to the radio. It was the only form of communication. And they saw my reporting. They really began to accept me as like, okay, we want you to come and cover our story or we'll let you in the inside and we'll take you along and we'll show you what is going on down here. So it was really a, a way to break in and let people know that I wasn't trying to change their culture. I just wanted to cover them and, and really highlight their, their stories. And so I always use that as a way to kind of soften the blow or uh, break the ice and reassure them that uh, I'm not trying to be, you know, an infantry, you know, Marine, I'm just here to take some photos. And so once they kind of understand that I'm just, I'm there to, document and and share the courage it takes to serve uh i can gain gain access and gain trust that way no i, I mean listen the, the intensity of the assignment i think um you know on one hand and we'll, we'll probably advance forward to it but it's good and it's bad in the, in the sense where there's not a lot of time for you know bad stuff to happen because everyone's laser focused on what is in front of them in the same respect it's like as you move forward it's hard to maintain that level of intensity and focus throughout 
uh, other parts of your career where, cause everything lulls, right. It ebbs and flows from, from an operational tempo standpoint. Well, sure. You know, I luckily knock on wood, I have never had any first, first, uh, hand accounts of any, any sexual harassment or wow. sexual assault or Good anything like that. I, you know, I've kind of learned early lessons to just mind my business. I don't, I never really, you know, put myself in a situation where there could be an issue. I was very mindful of that. And so, but not to say that there are definitely times where it's very obvious that people don't want you there, you know, because you're a woman or just some gender, uh, if you will, definitely, uh, you have to work twice as hard to be considered half as good, you know, and there's always a, can we trust you or what are you doing here? Why are you here? Um, mentality, but I just roll with it. And, you know, if I'm being paid to do a job, I'm there to do a job. And, you know, I tune those people out, avoid them and let it, let the chips fall where they may. So on the other hand, I've had some great, I've worked with so many great people and that really want women to succeed and want the mission of telling the story to, to be completed. And that's all that matters. And so I've worked in a lot of joint environments and been on assignment and multinational and joint. And, uh, you know, I just don't let that bother me. And so just being able to push through that and not take it personally, nothing is personal with me. And so not to say there's been some ups and downs and, uh, you know, good days and bad, like everyone, but I don't let that bother me at all because women have been serving in the military. Like I said, my grandmother was a nurse in the army in world war two. And I didn't think it was sort of a new concept, but uh, there are people out there kind of conditioned to think that women don't belong in the military. But I think over the last 30 years, it's been great to see firsthand just how, far women have come and so even into combat operations and now the policy that supports women conserving combat MOSs and it's it's been great uh to see you know I always kind of caution be careful what you ask for because you might just get it and sure enough we got it for women and there are women serving and uh doing the best that they can to you know contribute and serve our nation all right, let's fast forward a little bit to 9-11, um, because obviously your career takes a dramatic turn after that. But where are you? What are you doing? And, and sort of what happens right after that that time frame? Yeah, so I had served eight years on active duty. I was deployed to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. Then I served at Camp Pendleton. And from there, I left active duty so I could finish my bachelor's degree, uh, which which was a normal career progression. And I stayed in the reserves because I just I didn't want to leave the Marine Corps. But back then you really had to attend day school, like day classes. They didn't have online or, or any, you know, options like that. So I stayed in the reserves and then nine 11 happened. And sure enough, uh, I got the call to be mobilized in 2002 to Afghanistan. And this was before Iraq and Afghanistan was still very new. And there weren't a lot of boots on the ground there where they were just really ramping up. There's just a few civil affairs task force and, just some really early, early days. And so I went to Afghanistan and I was a public affairs chief as a staff sergeant in the Marines uh, for a civil affairs task force there in Kabul. And they were just building up Bagram and building up the embassy complex. And so it was just a great 
a great deployment for the army. I was the joint part of the joint task force for the army. Um, so it was great to be part of an army civil affairs and they, they were doing amazing things. We we're going out every day, delivering school supplies, hospital supplies, books to the university and really can roam freely for the most part in Kabul and outside of Kabul and back and forth to Bagram. We used to drive that one hour uh, trip back and forth. And um, it was great to see the country without really the threat of being so dangerous. And then I returned from that deployment. I ended up finishing getting my bachelor's degree from California State University at San Marcos, bachelor's in communications. And so it was a great fit. But then sure enough, the war in Iraq continued on. And uh, I volunteered for a deployment to Iraq in 2006. And the Marines were really uh, filling out Ambar province and trying to just, you know, um, the, the general body at that point in time too that's right the combat operations were were at the height in that year of 2006 in ambar which included yeah included ambar uh, fallujah ramadi habania uh takadam al-assad air base and okay. so i was assigned to the marines there and so for a year-long deployment covering combat operations now, you said you volunteered for that why did you volunteer I did. Well, I felt, you know, you just can't relax when you're at home and there's still combat operations going on. And you're like, I want to be a part of that. If I, that's my unit, I was assigned to first Marine expeditionary force at Camp Pendleton. And they were really just doing one year on one year off rotations. And so I got into the rotation and they built out the team, a combination of active duty and reservists. And so I'd finished my bachelor's degree and I thought that was a great way to I'll say pay back my student loans, but um, also contribute to the mission. No, and- it was. It was a great way to pay back. I did the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> Had to pay that back. I didn't know how else I was going to do that. Uh, but it was. I, I just wanted to continue my service. And so I thought that would be a great a great plug in. Is there, is there any point in time as you're heading into Iraq, clearly knowing that the level of violence um, is different than what you saw in Afghanistan in 2002? Any hesitancy about your own security and safety, or at least, you know, I mean, before you were doing schools and hospitals and everything else, that's, you, you had to know going in, that wasn't what you were going to be doing. Well, you know, I, I did know the danger, but I, I didn't realize just how dangerous it was <laughs> going to be. I, I just, you know, as public affairs, you're kind of like, you feel like you're immune from the danger. Cause you're like, Oh, those are frontline troops. Those are combat engineers. Those are combat operations. Uh, but when we got there, of course, we were expected to go uh, on combat operations and document and or escort media. So those were the things that we were doing and every day. And so you just kind of stepped off, not really worried about the danger for yourself. You're just really wanting to serve the mission. So- was there a, was there a oh, bleep moment for you on that deployment? Like, oh, hey, uh. Yeah, uh, this isn't what I signed up for. Well, you know, when you step off and you write your will and you pack away your goods and you you say your goodbyes, you're really kind of saying that I fully accept and understand what I'm getting into. And so I'll tell you, there were several moments, uh, close calls for sure, where rounds are whizzing over your head and you hear a mortar drop, you know, a block away and you can feel it, you can hear it, 
and and you hear you hear the alarms going off, so you know danger close, danger close at all times. And uh, and when you know my my job there was to so they had stopped doing a lot of media embeds because it was just too dangerous, too many media top top media too. You know the networks had stopped bringing people in, so they were relying on our photos and our video footage for the nightly reporting. And so we would go out and get, you know, the B-roll that was needed uh, to tell the story. And so I thought for sure, you know, I was out every day. I was taking a satellite dish around to do satellite uplinks for our commanders to uplink with media as well. So I thought if anybody's going to get it, it might be me, you know, I, just being at the, unlucky at uh, the wrong place at the wrong time. And, and so a lot of close calls for sure. Um, but I was already in the mindset that if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I'm okay with that. Uh, there, that was the, the price to pay, so to speak. And so, um, and being so busy, I remember days where there were so many memorial services, we just couldn't cover all of them, you know, and it was just an emotional roller coaster. At one point, I think the, uh, and you know, that September, October, November of 2006, we were losing upwards to 100, 125 people per month. And so you just couldn't cover all the memorials, which was really sad to, you know, just knowing that they were just happening so fast. You just didn't even have time to um, acknowledge fully and understand until you get home and you're like, wow, that was, that was very dangerous. Do you, did you have to dissociate yourself sort of mentally and emotionally from memorial services and what you saw and everything because you know again i mean you know journalism as they say uh which might be a a relic of times gone by um but it's one of those things where you know you, you have an obligation to report the story as factual and, and as is um but in the same respect you know um some of these people are people that you you know went out on missions with or you knew or had a, a degree of separation from and you know there's a certain amount of of emotional and personal toll that that takes on you. But I guess, you know, still in, in the vein of your job, you kind of have to just report the facts as is. I mean, how hard was that for you? Well, I'll tell you at a point there, I was going out getting footage of, of Marines and soldiers uh, operating in the field. We're doing, you know, house to house searches and vehicle stops and uh, doing going out on the rivers uh, as we were training Iraqis, uh, police and border um, and army. And whenever I'd come back, I'd get the footage and photos. And then I'd hear two or three days later, like, oh, that sergeant was killed or that person was killed or that person just lost their legs. And so I had footage and photos of them talking and, uh, you know, photo footage of them as I interviewed them. And so uh, they were like, Staff Sergeant Forsyth is not allowed to go out anymore because every time she would take photos and video of someone, they ended up getting killed or injured. And so, uh, you know, it, it did take a toll. It's very hard because that was the last capture photo or video that I could send to the families and make a video tribute, like a memorial to the for, for that fallen service member. So having those last images of them alive and then being able to share that with gold star families, you know, later and having that, the last image was, was very impactful. And so, but being able to reflect on it now has been really wonderful to, you know, share that with people and realize now we know now that 
photos and video are so important. And so that's why commanders have prioritized that. It's like, get the combat camera out there, get, get the public affairs, get the photographer out there to get the photos, tell the stories, because not only is it documenting, but it's telling the story in a historical archives as well. Because without photos and stories, it kind of evaporates and it, and it becomes um, less memorable. When you, uh, when you finish this deployment, like, is, was there one particular mission or shot or, you know, tape that you got that stands out to you as like, whoa, this was, you know, some of the best work we did on this whole tour? Well, there were so many, there were so many, but a body of work really, um, and showcasing the depth and breadth of the tour for 12 months in Ambar province, there were so many stories um, to go back and archive. But during that deployment, people may remember Major Megan McClung, and she was a public affairs officer who's one of my bosses that I worked for, and she was killed while escorting media, Newsweek and Fox News crew in Ambar from Ramadi. And so that was at the tail end of our deployment in December. And she was killed. And that really made an impact on on people because one, she was a woman. One, she was an officer. Three, number three reason is she was public affairs. So really the most unlikely candidate to be killed in combat, if you think about it. Uh, So that really flipped the script on a lot of things and took people by surprise. And of course, we had a lot of photos of her and video just from our deployment. And so really just looking over those photos now and, you know, kind of the memory fades, it, uh, the memory, memory fades, but thank God we have photos to kind of, it's, she's frozen in time at that age and at that time in her life where she was on deployment doing, doing that. And so a lot of people remember her and through, thankfully through those photos that we can share with people um, of what she was like. And she was also the first female officer in the Marines to be killed. That's right. And, you know, and she was a Navy, Navy Academy, Naval Academy graduate, triathlete, super moto uh, runner. Everyone knew her for her running. And so the least likely candidate to that we would think traditionally um, to be killed, but her and two other soldiers that were in a vehicle were hit by an IED. And, you know, that could have been me, could have been any of us uh, really. And so just to, put that flame out was really hard. And so it's just still even hard to even understand. But when people realize that, oh, women are willing, able and, and capable of serving, it really does uh, bring home that it's an all hands on deck effort. And if women especially are willing to risk it all, put on a uniform, kid up and step off, that that should mean something. And I think in today's environment, that means a lot. And so we've kind of moved the needle when in terms of, for especially for women serving, saying, I'm just as much putting myself at risk too. Don't you see that I am here? I want to serve and continue the mission and, and do the work. And so I think by showing that, showing and reminding people that women also were killed and uh, in combat, that means a lot to share their stories. She's also the first graduate of the Naval Academy, first female graduate of the Naval Academy to be killed in uh, in combat as well. So uh, a lot of I mean, unfortunately, obviously, but a lot of firsts there in that whole thing. Um, As I understand it, though, on her uh, on her tombstone, her sort of media motto was was emblazoned on there. Do you remember it? That's right. Her 
her and I worked with her for many years, even before that deployment, her motto was be bold, be brief and be gone. And that was her testament or the way she uh, coached and did her media training is telling commanders and Marines to uh, when you get in front of the camera and you step up to the mic to be bold, be brief and be gone. That was her mantra. And I have a, I have a here, a copy of that where well, you can't really see it, but. Uh, but yeah, you can see the, the headstone. She's yeah. at, at Arlington national cemetery. So it's, it's on there. That's right. And so people can go and visit. And so it was just a natural fit for her parents' decision to, for her to be buried there at Arlington, uh, surrounded by, you know, colleagues, uh, other alumni of Naval Academy and other, you know, fellow service members who died in that year of 2006, because they're somewhat lined up chronologically. Yeah. Uh, and again, a, a very, very phrase that is uttered a million times over into any meeting that I've ever walked into in my life in the military. Be bold, be brief, be gone. Stop talking, uh, especially in the Zoom world. Now that we have to do it in, it's like, dear Lord. Uh, anyway, but we digress. So um, from that sadness, you know, that deployment ends. Uh, th- is there any thought? you know, with, with losing somebody like Megan of sort of winding it down for you at this point, did it give you any pause for what you wanted to do? Or, you know, was there more left for you at this point? Where, where are you mentally after this, this third deployment? Yeah. So I returned to Oceanside, California, and I started graduate school actually um, with no real intention of ever redeploying because we thought, okay, the surge in 2006, combat operations, ANBAR was sort of improving the conditions there. And sure enough, though, I got recalled again, or I somewhat volunteered to go back to the same place in ANBAR in 2008. So it was 12 months on, 12 months off. I had started school, took a break in my uh, master's degree at University of San Diego, and I returned to the same place in ANBAR province with the same unit for another year-long deployment in 2008. And no regrets at all. Uh, The danger was not, there was, the risk was sort of minimalized at that point because the surge had taken hold, the awakening in Anbar had had started to hold and uh, we turned the tide, but very, still very dangerous nonetheless. And uh, did another deployment in 2008, uh, back to the same place. And if I hadn't gone back there and you, you, you know how awful it was, I would not have believed that the improvements that were made in Ramadi, the government center was rebuilt, schools, colleges. So we did a lot of openings. We did a lot of ribbon cuttings. We did a lot of process improvement um, during that year as well. In 2008 conditions had, had been improved. And so I said, if it can be, if it can be done in Ramadi, Iraq, it can be done anywhere, right. In that short amount of time. So I I did see progress. And that was your last deployment to Iraq, correct? That's right. Yeah. So two, two separate deployments to Iraq. And, and the, so- only reason, the only reason I say that, I'm sorry, I apologize for cutting you off, but just for, for frame of reference, I ended up there for the closeout of Iraq in 2011. And I remember remarking how things had started to take a downturn um, from what there was in 2008, 2009. Um, and, and everything that they had, you know, the term hull velocity is the best way it's been described for anybody who's into boating or sailing. Hull velocity sort of dictates how fast a sailboat can go regardless of wind speed and everything else because of the way it's made. We had hull velocity in Iraq in about 2009. It was never going to get any better than that. 
And that's when things started to take a downturn in 2010, ultimately in 2011 when we left. But I was just kind of surprised to hear you say that because I remember when I left in 06 and got back in 11, I'm like, you know, I don't know how much better things really got around here. Like, it doesn't look like it's all that vastly improved. And that was sort of the reason why I wanted to put that frame of reference in there. So you saw a lot of improvement. Definitely. At least in Ambar province. and Yeah. yeah. So they had done a lot of work in 2007. The conditions had improved so that, you know, construction can continue and things can be rebuilt and contracts were up and running and people were actually rebuilding um, what had been destroyed in 2004 through 2006. So I, I saw the colleges, agriculture college and other, you know, key places in the government center improve. At least they can start to function again. Um, whereas, and people started to return to their homes and things like that. Is so, the operational tempo the same as it was back then, or is it slowed down a little bit from your first deployment? Yeah, uh, a little bit slower. People could uh, take a little bit of a breather and, you know, people weren't dying as much. And so you can move, you know, you can get things done a little bit more because you're not doing the combat battle assessments and the memorial services and things like that. So you could, you know, get outside the wire and and do things a little bit better in 2008. So that was great. Um, Knowing that we're just reporting on progress and, and trying to keep just trying to keep, keep rowing, you know, in 2008 was a turning point, I think, um, for that. And then I returned from there, finished grad school in 2009. And then I got turned on to a program with the Navy, uh, a direct commission officer program. So I was working for a Marine Colonel at the time. And he said, Hey, Amy, why don't you check out this program in the Navy? It's direct commission officer, you just finished your master's degree. Um, getting promoted to gunny was on the horizon, and uh, but I but you know you hit service career limitations when you're just enlisted. You have to you can only serve so long for certain ranks. And so I thought, oh, I love the Marine Corps. I didn't want to leave, but I applied for the program. I got selected, and I, I have no regrets. So uh, transitioning from a Marine staff NCO to a brand new ensign uh, in the Navy at the time. And so that was about 12 years ago. And, and I've been afforded so many, uh, a wider uh, spectrum of opportunities to serve in the Navy reserves as a public affairs officer. So no regrets whatsoever. I returned back to the defense information school and attended the public affairs uh, officer or, uh, yeah, public affairs officer course. And that was great. And so from there though, I, the, the mission continued because Afghanistan now had, you know, lingered on and taken some downturns. And so I got mobilized in 2012 to serve on a joint task force for the NATO led mission and at back to Afghanistan. So I got mobilized and, um, again, to pay off, uh, graduate school, lo- school loans. So, uh, We're in some sort of vicious cycle here, Amy. Yeah, that's right. That's Get a right. Degree, deploy to pay it off. Get a degree, deploy to pay it off. You know, just stop getting degrees and you don't have to go anywhere. <laughs> I know, but you know, I just wanted to top it off to make sure that I checked all the boxes and, and we're kind of keeping pace with my, with colleagues. And if I wanted to, you know, go on to do other things, that's, that's kind of the boxes you, you have to check. I feel like in order to keep, keep rowing and keep competitive, at least in the you know military. So I, 
deployed and got assigned to a German-led NATO command in Masri Sharif in the north of Afghanistan. And things were were sort of steady, but there was definitely danger. But our main mission at that time was to train and advise and assist building the Afghan army, the border, the police. And so that was the main focus of effort there. You know, with it, uh, with Afghanistan being in such a state of flux at that point in time, um, comparatively speaking to Iraq, when you see the level of combat that's involved there, how is it different and, and how, you know, heavy was it? Well, I'll say that under the NATO command and the German led, their approach was much different and they had a different relationship with the local area in the regional command north, which it was all of the northern Uh, provinces in Afghanistan. So um, I can probably only count on one hand how many, you know, either combat actions or combat deaths that we had. We had some, a couple helicopters go down and a few other uh, mishaps that resulted in injury and death. But, you know, the NATO had just a different approach and we were there to advise them as well and model for them. But that was just such a great experience um, and getting out and really then trying to shift the focus into guiding the Afghan media. So I would meet with my media counterparts regularly and we'd talk about journalism. We'd talk about how to stand up, you know, civil society. And so it was really, you know, building a nation with one handshake at a time through different different meetings, different opportunities to kind of fill in the gaps there with the media. And there I had a very mature media cohort there with different media outlets reporting. And so we we did our best to try to work with them and encourage them to to continue reporting, continue pressing the envelope in terms of telling the story that was going on. But Taliban were always lurking around and we were, you know, I visit Kandu's, um, Masri Sharif, other places that were strongholds and, you know, places of, of the original battles in the Northern Alliance. And uh, just some reading some of that story and history that was there, it was never far from mind when, when in that Northern area in the Northern um, Alliance up there. This is your final uh, combat deployment between Iraq and Afghanistan, right? Um, I mean, you, you, you'll end up other places in the world. Um, at the time, did you think it was your final one? I did. I said, I'm, I, this is it. I'll go one more time. And I thought surely the war in Afghanistan couldn't linger beyond 15 years. Right. Uh, um, but I, I came home. I, um, uh, my, I got a civilian job working for defense media activity and took a job in Guam, the Island of Guam and was covering all, all the large-scale exercises in the Indo-Pacific region, traveling to Sri Lanka, Palau, uh, Singapore, Malaysia, just some amazing opportunities covering all the large-scale exercises. And of course, it was hot, uh, very hot with China, North Korea, all the activity going on there with with everything that was going on. So it was fascinating to be in that area, just shifting mindset away from central command uh, to Indo-Pacific command where things are really um, hot. But sure enough, uh, there was another opportunity to deploy. I thought I was going, I was on mission to go to Djibouti, Africa, because that was one place I hadn't been yet. But when I got assigned to joint uh, special operations command in 
North Carolina, they said, we're actually need to remission you. We have an urgent need and opening in Afghanistan at Bagram Air Base. And I said, okay, well, I really signed up to go to Djibouti, Africa, but the needs of the military you know, were priority. And I, I said, sure, send me, I'll go, I'll go again to um, Afghanistan. I felt confident that I knew the mission, I knew what to expect. And because I'd been there, I even studied Farsi. I had a lot of media contacts that I was still in touch with. So it was just really returning to a place that I was very familiar with. So uh, I, yeah, so that was a great opportunity. Yeah. I mean, are you, are you, Ever feeling like here we go again? Like I, I thought I was trying to break this cycle, and now I'm I'm you know back where I started, kind of deal. You know, no, I I I love that environment. I really do enjoy the op tempo. I love the adventure of it. So I was excited. I really did want to go. And I mean, I joke with people that I used to make a living going to war, uh, but I really it truly carried me through and got got my school loans paid and has afforded me some great opportunities. But because I have all the institutional knowledge of what was done in 2003, 2013, and then, you know, continue to study the area and understand the media landscape, understand what people are saying and thinking and hearing back home and ways to fill the gaps, how to cover those stories, what's the priority, and to help um, shape the, not shape the message, but tell the story in an honest way. And because everyone around me on those deployments, it might've been their first time. And so I can help them say, well, back in these days, or here's the geography, let's look at the map. This is where this happened. This is where that happened and provide some historical context. And so I kind of grew up through my thirties and my forties, sort of plugging in, plugging out, but you know, as, as a reserve PAO, we should all be plug and play and kind of in step with these issues. If we're, if we are at war, being ready to go at any time. And that's what we're there for. So uh, there wasn't a lot of ramp up time, but things change over a course of two or three or five years. So it was a little bit of a learning experience, but in Afghanistan, it's always the same players, you know, people there. So nothing changes really there. So it was really like nothing had changed. Uh, So to that end though, it's like, you know, by the time you get to the mid 2013, 2015, 16 range, it becomes for Godistan. Like it was never talked about on the evening news ever. Uh, if there was somebody killed, it was buried as the fourth or fifth story. Um, it never led with anything. Clearly we weren't having national media embeds running in and out of Afghanistan. Right. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, sort of spitballing here, just thinking that there there wasn't a lot, even if there was action going on, there wasn't a lot of people desiring to cover it. So in, in the grand picture from when you first get there to this time, how much of, did you notice the sort of civilian media coverage alter and change? Well, it sort of uh, went in ebbs and flows, but in my 2018 deployment, I, I cause I was assigned to um, the task force there, which we had, you know, Green Berets, we had Rangers, we were training the commandos, we had some very serious missions. And that was really the only game in town where we were doing targets and, you know, ODAs were out at the front lines and, you know, trying to protect the northern borders and really doing some partner training and trying to really stand up those those forces. So 
I had Wall Street Journal. At, at the time, I had um, Marty Scoblin, who was starting up his Coffee or Die oh, magazine. Uh, I know Marty. Marty was a former guest there on the Hazard Ground. Yeah, so it was great to kind of be able to select who we could, you know, bring into this very elite, very exclusive coverage opportunity. So I would say we always had media interest, Newsweek, Time Magazine. We had some really top tier media um, in 2018 um, coming in. And, you know, obviously watching last August was just, you know, awful to see how things, you know, all of a sudden now there's interest in, you know, what was going on in Afghanistan. But yeah, the media obviously covering it, the people who cared knew what was going on and, you know, tried to bring it to the front. But everyone, obviously, Americans were just sort of over it, you know, not interested uh, or like confused as to why are we still there? What are we doing? And so, Last August was just heartbreaking for anyone who's ever stepped foot in Afghanistan. You know, we were never at war with Afghans. Uh, so the culture, the people, the landscape, the ancient history there is just, it's really just majestic. It, it's just an amazing place. Um, and so it was just really hard to watch the pullout uh, in Afghanistan and understand, if you understand how hard that was to see um, how did it affect you personally? Well, the whole month of August, I was, you know, watching TV. I was so angry. I was just sick, sick to my stomach, really just ill the whole month watching what had happened and furious because it didn't have to be that way. And for anyone who served there, it's just the closure was always sort of unknown. Like, how is this going to happen? And how can we do this with dignity and make sure that no one gets hurt? And so that we felt as if we won something or maybe just a, a break even, can we just break even here? You know, after we'd lost so much treasure, can we just break even? Can we just leave peacefully shake hands and move out or something, you know, um, turn it over to the Taliban. That's fine, but it didn't have to be, um, this dramatic loss of life. And, and so I was putting together my book, uh, Heroes Live Here, and which is a, a tribute to Marines of Camp Pendleton who had served and sacrificed so much in Iraq and Afghanistan. And the bulk of those Marines that were killed at the Abbey Gate in Afghanistan were from Camp Pendleton. So within hours of learning this, the front gate had become a monument and a tribute to those that we had lost. And so I'd had to put that in the book heroes live here. Uh, I'm curious when you're, when you're, are, are you mad as much about the, uh, the withdrawal itself and the exit or the coverage of it? I mean, does that make it a double whammy for you from somebody who is in that space and understands sort of the background of how that should have been presented to the world? No, I think that the coverage was, was okay, but it wasn't, it wasn't good news. It wasn't good the way it was covered, but media, you know, did the best they could, I think, but it wasn't set up for success uh, in the first place. So you kind of got what, got what we deserved as far as like, how are we covering this, you know, from a, from a media perspective, but it was, it was just an awful example of how, we didn't plan properly. And so I think that it was just 
really awful <laughs> just in my in my perspective watching it and knowing that there's tens of thousands of troops out there who served in Afghanistan suffered sacrificed everything and this is this is what we got this is how it ends so um it was it was just just awful i i feel like it was just awful so um the accountability piece, you know, is, is tough to grapple with and the aftermath um, of it. So something between the podium to what was happening, there's a big disconnect. And so, you know, and we know, I know behind the scenes, like what we're saying and what we're doing, left hand meet right hand is not happening. <laughs> so could we just get an honest accounting? Can we just be Let's be frank. Let's be clear. Let's be honest about what is happening. The American people can can take it. It's just let's just be honest. Let's just say what we're doing. This turns into a much bigger conversation we don't need to have. But in short, it's, you know, all of us, I think, who wore a uniform, who deployed to Afghanistan or Iraq, for that matter, just have been in combat. Understand the premise of taking the accountability. Look, we, we all understand the old adage, right? You're going to make an omelet, you got to break a few eggs. Bad things are going to happen in combat. There's, and just because we were exiting doesn't mean it's not combat, right? Uh, you don't just run and leave. Uh, you don't just retreat. You have a you have a hasty or or a, you know predicated withdrawal that is done in in a timely fashion. You know, we left Iraq and everybody knew when we were leaving there, and none of the bad stuff happened because we did it the right way. Well, this wasn't the case, and so. You know, again, uh, the accountability piece is always still the toughest part that all of us are grappling with and, and really are frustrated about. You know, I mean, we're, we all understand military leaders make mistakes. They do the wrong things. They, they make the wrong decisions. Fine. We can live with it all. Just stand up and say it was my bad. It was my fault. I should have done this and, and, and move on as best you can. But again, I don't want to go down that road because we'll be here for the next three days that said you did uh you did mention your book heroes live here tribute to camp pendleton marine since 9 11 so what's the impetus here now is this uh you know i mean are you trying to tell stories through pictures and everything i mean how does this all come about yeah so i had just done some reflection over the years and thought how can i share what i'm seeing so i came back to we moved from guam back to camp pendleton where i work and I was driving through base and just noticed all these tributes that I, you know, I deployed from Camp Pendleton and that's where the majority of the um, people that I served with and all these tributes and things that I'd covered overseas were now being reflected back home uh, on base. And I took some pictures. I thought maybe I could share with the gold star families or fellow Marine veterans who don't have access to the base anymore and share that with them. And then I thought, you know, this would just make a nice story. So I got a couple, um, vignettes or stories from other people to help tell that story about their experience and deployed from Iraq and Afghanistan and put it all together in a book. And I thought, you know, this is a great way to share it with a wider audience. And so Heroes Live Here was just took me about a year to put together, but I, I'm very fortunate that's been gotten been received great reviews from Marines. And so as long as they're happy and telling that story and trust me enough with that, then I'm happy. And so it's just a way to honor the service and sacrifice of those from Camp Pendleton. So in my research, I learned that more Marines from Camp Pendleton were either killed or injured in Iraq and Afghanistan than any other one base or station in America. So it's kind of a heavy burden for the community, the surrounding community of Oceanside, Carlsbad, 
San Clemente, Vista, Fallbrook, they've all been so supportive over the past 20 years. And so through through the years, so through the generations, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and then this generation, the surrounding communities have played a large role in supporting the families that remain behind. That's amazing. Um, you know, and I do this often, and I would love to go out to Camp Pendleton and see it just because it's it's inspiring and, and yet gut-wrenching at the same time. But you know, I, I go to Fort Stewart a lot and they have this walk with all these trees on it. And for everybody who was part of third ID who, who uh, didn't return home uh, and they've had over the years just to add more and more and more. And it's, it stretches across a huge parade field and everything else. And I always encourage my unit to go by there anytime they get to just spend an hour in the morning, you know, for, for, for go PT and, and, and go spend an hour there and just walk around and pay your respects. And when you said that, it's just like, wow, I, I can only imagine how honoring all those fallen people in one place, you know, it's just, it's got to, like I said, it's inspiring, but gut-wrenching at the same time. It is. And the base is so big though. And every unit kind of has their own little memorial. So it really is just, you could spend a day driving around looking at all the different memorials. And so I just thought this is a great way to do what I can to pay tribute to these Marines through the years. And really it is 20 year generation. So the new Marines that are on base now, you know, they were, weren't even born or just babies in nine 11. So this helps put, put in perspective for them. And it reads like a magazine really, cause it's a lot, a lot of pictures and, you know, stories. And so, um, so it, I know Marines don't like a lot of text, you know, they like pictures. It's, it's easy to read. It's full color. It's 200 pages. And so just some great tributes and um, pictures from my photos from Iraq and Afghanistan also to depict, you know, that combat operations over there and just sort of making that connection between Camp Pendleton and then the forward deployed units. So um, it's been a passion project for me and just, you know, love sharing it with people. Anytime you can do that uh, and, and continue to tell those stories, especially those people who are lost, uh, I think it's just it, it's an amazing thing. I, I wanted to pivot with you to a little bit just about some some general questions referencing, you know, covering the military and everything else, because we, we touched on it a little bit at the top of the show. Um, for better, worse or indifferent, I have my own personal feelings on it. Um, the military has become quite the nugget uh, on the news for a lightning rod of a lot of things. Uh, and, and a lot of this did start with Afghanistan, but um, as much as, you know, uh, I, I would love more former vets in Congress and, and, and elected officials. Um, there seems to be a toxicity right now in that whole environment that I don't know is necessarily doing the military any good because um, whereas all those people used to respect the military before now they, they either use it as a pawn in a game or they take shots at it. Um, to sort of make a political point or score a political point somewhere along the line. So in your now 30 years of covering the military, I know it's hard to encapsulate it, but what has changed the most? What stands out to you the most? What, what, what do we need to do better? Sort of, you know, explore some of these things that, that covering the military has presented you over the years. Well, I think we have some really talented, uh, you know, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines with their photography skills or video skills. I think there's just so much talent out there. And with social media, we can connect with Americans at any time very easily. We don't necessarily need the media to amplify the message per se. Um, But I do think there's value in making it uh, available for all 
military members to kind of leverage their own capabilities, um, whether you're trained as a public affairs or combat correspondent or comstrat. Uh, I do think there's some great content creators out there who are in uniform. And if I think if we can just leverage them who are may they may be um, a different MOS, not working in public affairs, but they have a story to tell and they're telling it and they have such huge influences. They're, you know, tens of thousands of followers out there and if they advocate for joining the military. I think if uh, we as public affairs, we could leverage them a little bit and help them reach people that we can't reach or that recruiters are having a hard time reaching. Um, I think in general, um, we do surveys all the time. of like, what's the overall impression that Americans have of military or, you know, it's kind of steady, but it all ties back to recruiting. So the ebb and flow of the recruiting effort is, is a testament of how well or areas that we can improve for telling that story and shaping, um, you know, serving in the military. Is that a lifestyle that someone wants um, but I think that we could be using those really talented influencers out there. Sure. Uh, and I, I, I'm, in certain cases, I don't think the military does themselves any favors um, in the way they choose to present themselves or what they allow to be presented about themselves. Um, you know, I always held to the maxim of uh, you tell the story or somebody else will tell it for you. And I'd rather have my story out there first, my narrative out there first before anybody else gets a crack at it. Uh, but I, I know a lot of commanders are not in that same vein. You know, they're more on the defensive when it comes to when things happen of how they want to present it and they want to wait. And they, you know, and I, I think it's a, it's the wrong way to do things, especially in 2022 where um, there is right, wrong, or indifferent. There is a point to being first with something as opposed to being accurate with something. Um, but how do you think the military could do it better? Well, I think there's a fine balancing act between releasing information or sharing too much, getting ahead of things. Um, oftentimes the, the tendency is to, well, I want to just wait and see, or I want to be accurate. I, we have to do, you know, an investigation or we just don't want to jump ahead and, um, you know, release information or respond to queries that don't mean anything. Uh, so, I do think, though, that um, allowing other people, other voices, instead of just controlling the narrative all the time, so it's just more of a control the narrative uh, effort. But I think that there's there's some great opportunities to you know partner with other aid activities or people to have them advocate and influence people rather than necessarily you know, a senior leader doesn't necessarily connect uh, with people 100% of the time. So there could be other ways to make those connections. Well, I think, too, that there's a, as you mentioned, there's a hesitancy to embrace different things generationally about the military. They are very, very slow to change, um, you know, and very, very slow to uh, adjust with the times, so to speak. Yet, I mean, Again, but just as an example, and I, I, this is a very loose example, but it's like, you know, uh, we allow stuff about, you know, uh, uh, you know, w- this whole idea that the military has become woke to get out there first. And yet we're not telling other stories of things that we're doing, you know, at lower levels to increase recruiting or make the military, you know, a better option, you know, uh, ways that we're going to pay for education, things of like that like they just 
I, I wish that they were more open to catching up with the times, so to speak. And, and in fairness, the times move a lot faster than they can, right? Uh, there's just way too much red tape for people um, to be able to do it. And yet somehow the Black Beret thing got through so quickly, I, I can't understand how, but that's neither here nor there. That's just my own personal angst against General Aaron, Eric Shinseki. It's one of the worst decisions I've ever had in my military career. But again, different discussion. Yeah, well, you know, it all boils down to a talent management issue. You know, I think that evolving um, the talent management piece of it will be the biggest shift, cultural shift in, you know, allowing people to, you know, homestead or stay at a place longer or, you know, different, just different approach to things because, they're competing with industry and if you want top talent you have to offer other things benefits that other industry leaders or large organizations are offering and so whether it's uh, paying for graduate school or allowing people to take a year off to do things and come back to the military these are all things that talent management and HR organizations are realizing that the next generation workforce will demand they will want here's this. a crazy idea and yeah. i've said this for a while and i don't know why why do we not have a bonus structure for the highest best rated people in our in our organization how hard <laughs> is it to institute if you have a top block you get a bonus what what's what, why shouldn't there be an incentivized anything for the very top people in our organization it's the easiest thing in the world to do and we don't do it plain and simple if your yeah. rating gets you a top block you get a bonus check okay merry christmas like i it's little things like that that are so easy that in the grand scheme, grand scheme of things, what it would physically cost the military from a monetary standpoint is so small. And yet we're sitting here going, nope, you get the same exact paycheck as the schmuck at the bottom of the barrel. Why? Why? Yeah. All of these modernization, talent management, HR modernization initiatives need to be on the table um, if we want to attract and retain top talent uh, and communicating that. You know, but they're probably far, far off from that. But I know the Marine Corps has just released, you know, is, is beginning to think about talent management and listening to the workforce about what are some things that we can do to shift and change to retain top talent and and make it a place where people want to want to work, even as a civilian or or a uniform member. And so there's just some modernization that needs to occur. So I think that's going to be the next, you know, in the next five years. Those are the the things uh, aside from more fighting and lethality and maintaining you know presence overseas and especially with the Navy's efforts to you know build more ships and train and develop weapon systems. But the the biggest and greatest weapon system is the individual and making sure that we have the right people and the right jobs. Yeah, it's always a great bonus mantra. Here, you're the best at your job. I'm just going to give you more work and tougher work. So here, congratulations. Uh, anyway, I kid, but you know, I know extra cash in your pocket wouldn't hurt ever. Anyway, uh, we digress. So, you know, again, I, I want to close with this because I think, you know, telling the story of the military is it's never going to be cookie cutter. It's never going to be easy, right? Because what we do isn't cookie cutter. It's not, you know, as devastating as fires and bad weather and, and, you know, crime can be, uh, to communities and families. There's a, there's a format to doing all that. There's, a, there's an easy way to do it. It's been done for a long time. Um, things with our organization at times are always moving and always changing. And, and um, 
they change a lot quicker on a grander scale than any of that ever is. And so it's not an easy job. Um, you've been awarded many times over your career for some, some amazing work that you've done and everything else. Um, you know, when you look back on it, is, is there anything about covering the military that you would do differently? That's a tough question. Um, you know, I'm sort of bound and constrained by what bosses want and what's the norm and what we've been trained to do and what's acceptable. But I've always tried to push the envelope, like creating the very first podcast for the Marine Corps or the very first video TV program or some sort of way to take a look at what's going on in the media industry and just replicate it, just do what they're doing and modernize and, and really kind of push people to keep current on current trends and different things. So um, I don't know about differently, but I could definitely, now I'm sort of in a position more to pitch ideas and make it happen and lead a team to success. So uh, you know, more rank, get more trust and, and confidence from bosses. And so trying to push people to let's do this. Let's just try it. How about this? Let's try that and uh, break the mold instead of, well, we just did that a hundred times last year. How about let's try this? Hey, I saw this on Instagram. Let's do some more reels. Let's do this. How can we reach people and meet them where they are, whether it's our own workforce or we're trying to reach our local communities or other people, we're trying to reach the media. What are some new ways that we can reach people? And, and this is not new, but rather take a look and what be have eyes and ears open to what's going on um, in the outside media. You know, what kills me is that when public affairs officers or people, senior NCOs in public affairs, they either don't have a LinkedIn, they don't have social media, they don't watch the news, and they don't bring anything to the table. They don't, like pitch ideas or understand how the sausage is made. And, you know, they've never worked, they've never gone for a shadow day at a TV station and understand even how a TV story is made or edited or delivered. You know, they don't go behind the scenes to learn. So how can you possibly meet their deadlines and understand what they're going through and be able to deliver a product to media or, you know, whoever, if you don't, engage and understand how this stuff comes together. And I worked in TV as a reporter for many years as well. So I, I kind of wore that civilian hat. So I understand the drive and the deadlines and the pressure behind journalism because I did it myself. And so I think that brings a great awareness. And so I, I empathize with them when they're trying to can't come back empty handed. They need the story and they need the right uh, soundbite and the right interview to occur. Um, but I think that it, for people out there as communicators, just tell the story, be authentic and honest and, and try new things. Really. I think that's where it's at. Uh, good, better, and different public affairs work directly for the commander. So the number one mistake that commanders make when they choose how to message or cover their own unit or their own operation or whatever it may be. Well, I think they have to be also in tune. They have to be out front. They have to understand the landscape and what they're saying and what they're doing. They have to know how the, the Google machine works and how the Internet thing works and the Instagram thing works. Uh, it's a lot for a leader. But if you want to be a leader, communication is a leadership trait and it, it is non-negotiable. You have to understand how these things work, because if you have people working for you and that's their only focus, say for PAOs, 
you have to kind of speak the language and understand that as well. Not just uh, logistics and supply and admin. You have trusted advisors, but you also have to kind of understand how all that works in order to be an effective leader. And then finally, um, advice for young females coming into the military who have just gotten in the military. What do you tell them? Well, I would say, and I'll, I'm actually stealing this from uh, the SEAC, uh, who, who said the um, senior enlisted advisor, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He said, just roll with the punches. You know, you have to kind of learn to roll with the punches in the military. It's not a perfect environment. It's not necessarily built for females uh, exclusively. So understanding that what kind of organization you're in and the culture will will set you up for success. Uh, But I'll tell this to anyone, any male or female, is that understanding where you fit in, how you can make a difference, put things in perspective, and definitely find a mentor, find someone, a trusted advisor that you can, not someone you work for, but someone outside your chain of command and really just connect with, with people, look for ways and opportunities to connect. Even if it's on online, follow people on social media who inspire you and roll with the punches and really lead your own life and, and actively decide, is this for me Am I going to make the best of it and make the most of it? Uh, and I, I'm sorry, I thought that was final, but I, there was one more thing. Uh, Success Magazine's top 50 women of influence. I mean, that's amazing. That's uh, congratulations. What an honor. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. Uh, I mean, among those lists uh, are some people you would recognize, but uh, Serena and Venus Williams and some other leaders in the veteran space and business industry. And so, you know, social media and telling the story has just been always a passion of mine. And I think that when we can teach other people how to use social media and communicate and share stories, it's really important because that's just the future. It's the way that people are going to view you for job interviews. They want to look at your online persona. And if you can portray yourself and really showcase you know, what you have to offer in a meaningful way. I think that is, is very important, especially for women. Well, again, 30 years still going strong. Uh, I hope you hit the finish line with the same <laughs> fervor and excitement that you started with. Uh, and, and it ends exactly the way you want it to. It's been an amazing career. Uh, thank you so much for doing everything to cover the Marines and the military uh, and, and get the story out there. It certainly is important. And the chronicling of history, which I think you know, can't be underscored in any size, way, shape, or form. Uh, for years, we're going to be able to hear about more of these stories that maybe a lot of people didn't know about. But I think, again, young people, children, grandchildren are going to be able to see what their their direct relatives were able to do uh, and, and the bravery and the courage and all those things. And especially those who are no longer with us, I think it's always important to uh, have their story repeated and told routinely, much similar to what we did with Megan earlier in the show. So, uh, continued success with everything. Best of luck. Uh, retirement, I know will look good on you. It, 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 it's right there. You can feel it. I, I, I know it. I can smell it myself. So uh, I certainly appreciate all your time and, and your, your honesty and, and sharing your story with us. It's been absolutely amazing. Well, thank you so much. You know, really inspiring patriotism for the next generation and making sure that we are ready for whatever our nation needs in the coming generations is so important. And as veterans ourselves, 
that's kind of a passion project. And thank you for everything that you're doing with highlighting uh, people post military and um, making sure that, you know, you're sharing those stories. Thank you as well. It's been amazing having you, Amy Forsyth. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.